take a, a concept and um, you know, there's different kinds of, kind of learning, different kinds of study. One is you sit there and um, talk about it, you know, the philosophy of this, the philosophy of that, and, uh, et cetera. Uh, and sometimes you don't talk about it, but you do it, and you study, and you, you drill down and try to understand uh, whether it's text or ideas. And uh, uh, many people, uh, certainly at the beginning of one's road of you know, personal search, are into all the big issues of, you know, the issues that, that sometimes will, be ne will, ne will never be resolved. And, um, you know, we sort of get lost on some of the global, like, where was God? How could God allow this to happen or that to happen, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, if we get into that mindset without sometimes balancing that with looking at the richness of some of the messages of, of Torah, um, we get a skewered view of, of, of um, A, how we're supposed to perceive our, our, ourselves in life, and sometimes we can even get down on ourselves. Um, you know, I, um, I try to work out early in the morning now, you know, on the elliptical, and I go on the elliptical, and I put on the iPad, and I start watching the news. And do you have any idea how depressing it is? You know, you get up there, and you, you know, you know, it's 5 o'clock in the morning, and okay, here are the news. You know, so first you hear about the death over here, and then you over here, and then the bombing over there, and then, oh, and then you hear about this disaster over here, and then this issue over here, and you, and you scratch, and you say, you know, um, okay, I believe in God, and I believe in everything, and, and, you know, what's the master plan here, and what's going on, and, and, and you know, you can stand elliptical for a few hours, you're not going to figure it out. And it, it's just not going to happen. Um, what we have to do is we have to always question those questions, but also balance it, as I say, with, with um, let's get to know them a little better. And if you want to get to know someone, read their book. Um, you get to know how they think. You get to know their writing style. You get to know what they consider important. And the more I spend time in the study of Torah over the years, uh, the more I feel comfortable that I have a little bit of a sense of, of, of what God wants from me. And even though I can't always answer the big issues, um, uh, I, I, I instinctively feel. And it's, it's ill-defined, but you just, you just, you just know that there's messages here that, that, that speak to me. And I'd like to explore, actually, Jack and Ashley, we do a series of these, but we'll do one tonight, we'll do it. If the sushi holds up, maybe I'll come back another time, you know. And um, I'd like to explore just one small little issue that I found as a thread in many of the verses of the Torah. And, uh, but we're not going to look at just uh, historical um, terms. Uh, in text, but we're also going to look at the contemporary issues and how they play out. And I'm going to discuss a couple of issues, and then I guarantee that every, each one of us uh, have the exact same issue in our own life. Um, the topic is... Peace versus principle. Struggle to do what's right. And what that really means in English is, you know, when are we supposed to be accommodating and look the other way, and when are we supposed to say, I'm not going And at which point do we push the envelope, or do we say, eh, it's no big deal? Um, how does God do that? Because what does God want us to do? Um, there are personal issues, you know, um, many times there are challenges in families, in relationships. You know, where do you make a stand for you know on this, or where do you say, okay, you know, what's, what's the principle, what's the framework? I want to talk about that a little bit tonight. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand out these sheets. And Jackie's all nervous about these sheets because there's a lot of it in Hebrew. And I said, Jackie, these are just tops. Don't worry about it. 
Okay? Yeah. So don't worry. It's, it's, even though there's some Hebrew over here, or some is in English, but there wasn't in Hebrew, you don't have to know a word of Hebrew. It's just that I need something to hold in my hand. So therefore, in also, I don't want to be speaking to people. I want to learn with people. So how do we learn? We learn? They're all books, okay? Don't be nervous. We're not going to go through all of it. Maybe we will. We'll see. I'd like to start with the first battle of the Bible. You know what that was? There's two people to fought. Cain and Abel. Okay? Great story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, well, first of all, let's go back. Who was Cain and Abel's father was? Adam. Mother was? Good, now we're getting into it. Good. Okay, wonderful. So Adam and Eve, there's no one else in the world, okay? Just picture the scene. You know, Adam and Eve get up in the morning, and they have these children, they have Cain and Abel. Okay? And you look as far as they can see, there ain't nobody else out there. So who controls the whole world? It's four people, right? And Adam and Eve, I guess they're getting a little older, so Cain and Abel, you know, they have no competition. So everything they can have, right? The only thing they can have is what the other one has. So all of a sudden, Cain and Abel, and both of them want to also have this sense of expression of, of service to God, so both of them want to offer sacrifices. And Cain offered a sacrifice to God, and Abel offered a sacrifice to God. One of them offered something very meaningful, and the, and the Torah tells us, if you look on the bottom over here, uh, line three, uh, I'm sorry, verse three, after a period of time, Cain brought an offering to God, Hashem, the fruit of the ground, right? He, he brought stuff which grows. As for Abel, he also brought the first of what is flock and from their choices. So one brought sheep and flock and animals and whatever, they really just, you know, went all out. And the other one brought a grain offering. Right? Also very, very nice. Don't get me wrong. You know, they also wanted to... But which one was more expressive? Right? The flock, right? And in the, in the verse you notice, it says, from their choicest. You know, the top quality. Beef. So Hashem turned to Abel and to his offering. It was God like the, the, the personal expression that Abel really wanted to give something good to God. And to Cain and his offering, he did not turn. He didn't get so excited about it. It's not that Cain didn't have what to give, because if you study about sacrifices and, and offerings, in, 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 if you don't have, you give what you have, and that's it. You know, just like charity, you know. Uh, you know, um, we just celebrated Purim, and, and Purim, uh, everyone had to give charity on Purim, even, even poor people. But how could poor people give charity? Because whatever, they have a penny, give them a penny. That's an expression, that's all, you know. So if you have nothing, then whenever you give to God, but here, as I said, they had everything, and yet they had everything, but Cain decides he's giving the cheap stuff because, come on, how much... Does God really need good stuff? What's God going to do with it? He's got everything, you know, he's God. And Abel, though, you know, he gave the good stuff. And God turns to one and not the other. This annoyed Cain exceedingly, and his countenance fell. Now, whose fault was that? His own, right? Who's the last one that Abel's going to complain against? himself. So what happens? He looks around and he sees God is like dancing around with, 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 with uh, Cain and um, with Abel and Cain there is sitting there and God's turning his back to him. So who does he blame? Who? Abel. Blamed Abel. Did Abel tell him what to do? No. 
Is Abel nothing? That's not all. And Hashem said to Cain, Why are you annoyed and why is your countenance fallen? Surely if you improve yourself, you'll be forgiven. In other words, take the message and do something with it, Cain. You know, it's a growing thing. Like, you know, God doesn't put us here to be automatons. God puts us here to struggle a little bit. Okay, you struggle, you know, you get through it. You'll do better. You know, if I turn my head against you this way, I can turn it right back this way. But if you do not improve yourself, sin rests at the door. Its desires toward you, you can conquer it. Wow. This is right at the beginning of the Bible. This is the first time of any kind of a discussion like this of, of you can improve yourself, you can, you can, you can do it, right? You, know, you low life, that you have everything in the world and you had nothing, and this is what you give me, and I'm telling you, I still love you. Just do it, do something, do something positive. So you do something positive, this is great, so you know, you'd expect then. Cain turns around and he says, well, well, look, you know, God says do something positive. Okay, I'm going to do something positive, right? And then I'll be back in God's embrace. So what does he do? Cain spoke with his brother Abel. Well, that wasn't really, it's almost like a non-sequitur verse over here. Right, he's saying, do something positive, right? And what's positive? Do something positive in terms of service to God. So what I would have done, had I been Cain at that point, I would have gone and said, oh, okay, I would take a sheep and do a sacrifice or sing some songs of praise to something, you know? What does he do? No. He turns to Abel, and it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Whoa. Not a good thing. Not smart. First murder of the Torah. Right here. Now, what did he have against him? I'll, I'll tell you what. Read the verse in English, right? You got the verse in English. You know, or you can read it in Hebrew if you want, right? Read the verse in English. Tell me what happened in that discussion. You have any idea? Verse 8. What happened in that confrontation, that discussion? Yes. Um, wait, you're, you're asking. On verse 8, what happened between the conversation of Cain to Abel? Right? Huh? There wasn't. There wasn't a conversation, exactly. So, what did he kill him for? So one of the commentaries says over here that once you start arguing with someone, forget the facts. It's a slippery slope. You start arguing, and that's why this is, all the Torah says he started talking to him, meaning an argument or something. What did he say? In an argument, it never makes a difference what you say. It's just once you start arguing. That's the way it is. That's life. It's life, it's part of our DNA from the beginning of time. So, you know, sometimes, you know, you get so caught up in an argument with someone, you don't even know what it was that you're arguing about. But you're arguing about He didn't even have anything to do with his brother at this point. It wasn't his fault. It doesn't make a difference. If someone has in their head that they want to argue, they want to make an issue, there's going to be an issue. And therefore, I would suggest that, that, that this verse is a red flag for all of us in any kind of a relationship. You know, you want to pick a fight, there'll be a fight. I guarantee it. Guarantee it. Forget the facts. If there's, if there's something inside, that if, if, if I had a bad day with this one, I'm going to have a fight over here, that's the way it happens. If that's the red flag, we also have to be sensitive to it. We have to be sensitive in our relationships. And again, the Torah is telling us the story. This is, this is past. 
God-written text. God's telling us this story for a reason. He's telling us, though, that when I read this, he's saying, Sonny boy, be careful for this. He's just not telling Torah tales or good night stories. Just be careful. You think you're better? You think you're closer to me, to God, than Cain or Abel? Are you kidding? Cain and Abel talking to God. The human, the way we are, that's the way it is. We have a mindset, we mess up, we turn against someone else, it's your fault. Boom. And almost for no reason. Let's hold that thought in the bands. Let's go to the next page. Next story. Okay. And this is actually one of my favorite little stories. There are actually three different things over here. I just like, I love it. The Jews are in the middle of the, the desert. They leave Egypt, right? After Passover, they're in Egypt. They're a nation now, and they're on a move, and all that's going well, you know, and everything. And all of a sudden, they are um, uh, confronted with other nations of the world who are trying to attack the Jewish people. And um, there's one particular group of people that hire a fellow named Bilaam and to come and to curse the Jewish people. And somehow they'd be able to, after cursing Jewish people, the Jewish people would then become more subservient to the other nations of the world. The Torah goes through a whole story. And Bilaam can't curse the Jewish people. He, 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 when he sees the beauty of, of, of how they, they live among themselves, he, even though he had this ability to curse, he wasn't able to curse the Jewish people. So they tried something else. They said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to act immorally with the Jewish people. And if we act sexually immorally with them, that'll bring them down. And God will be angry at the Jewish people, and that way we'll be able to be able to conquer them. So there was one leader of the Jewish nation, of one of the tribes, that uh, went into a lascivious, inappropriate relationship with someone, one of the people from the other nations of the world. And it led to a moral decay of the entire Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people were on, at this point they were, this is after receiving the Torah and everything, they were great people and all that, and all of a sudden, because of this, they had a tremendous moral decline. And there was a possibility that at this moment of history, had someone not stepped in to stop it, there could have been permanent damage to these people. So this fellow named Pinchas comes in. Right? Pinchas. And he takes a spear and he walks over to the head of one of the tribes and kills them. Okay? It was a moment of zealotry that no one else knew what to do. And Pinchas, this person, Pinchas, takes a spear, and boom, kills Hamza. So, let's read these, um, this first, actually there's no English on this, so I'll read it to you. Um, the Torah tells us that I'm giving special honors to Pinchas. Of course, why would you give a special honor to Pinchas? What did Pinchas do? Hello? Kill. What did he do? He saved. He basically saved the Jewish people because had he not stopped this, right, it would have been a total revolution, right? So Pinchas comes and says, "What award would you expect God to give Pinchas? What if you make up an award? You'd say, Pinchas, on behalf of the Jewish people, I'd like to present you with this award. Which award would it be? Huh? New tribe award. Okay. What other one?" Kingship Award, okay. You will be the king of the Jewish people, right? Or International Leadership Award, right? Or 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 Zealot Award. Let's have it for Pinchas, the Zealot of the Year, right? 
give him a new sphere. Right? You know what award God gave him? It says, I am giving Memphis the International Peace Award. In need of Tehla Lachem as we see Shalom. I give him the promise of peace. Not only that, but Pimpas, his children, his great-grandchildren, until the end of time, are going to be the peace leaders of the Jewish people. Now, did he act peacefully? No. So we're introduced now to the whole thing. Sometimes the peace guys aren't supposed to act Beforehand, we started with the story of God acted, act, where he shouldn't have. Here, we're introduced to Pinchas, who was given the honor of peace award, but he didn't act peacefully. Look at this next story. Read this, okay? Now, later on, in the book of Joshua, the same Pinchas, listen to this story. And then... Again, we're going to just give it, I'll, I'll try to frame it, and then you're just going to see something very fascinating over here, which just hits the point over again. Jewish people, 12 tribes. There were two and a half tribes on one side of the Jordan, nine and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan. And two and a half tribes wanted to stay because the grazing was better there and all the stuff was better, so the two and a half tribes stayed, the other nine and a half crossed over to the Jordan. All of a sudden, the nine and a half tribes here that there's idol worship, there's something going on, there's some kind of, not idol worship, but they're, they're, building, they're building these altars and doing service to God on the two and a half side, when you're not allowed. So they turned to Moses, they said, listen, what's going on over there? And Moses is not allowed. And they said, someone over there to quiet it down. Who could speak peacefully to them, and, 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 and calmly, and, 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 and won't get all frenetic, and, and will understand that maybe they don't know to see what's going on, right? So, let's see, who, who would you say? Well, Moshe, maybe, or Joshua, maybe, or this one or that one. To me, the last guy in the world he said is Pilchus. Pilchus. Oh, Pilchus. Spear. Boom. You know, in the story of Cosby, he didn't, there was no tribunal, there was nothing. He looked at the situation, he went, boom, finished. That's not what we want over here, so what's going to happen? What do I say? I mean, the answer is, he said, Pinchas. Now, wait a second. Look at this. And they turned away, children, Reuben, all that, right? They came to the regions in the land of Canaan, right? Um, a large altar in a showpiece. The God of Israel heard, saying, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Benad had built an altar opposite the land of Canaan, the region of... Terrible, God says, an outrage. Look at this, their idol worship. My God, two and a half tribes. When the children of Israel heard, the entire assembly of the children of Israel congregated at Shiloh to advance against them. Nine and a half tribes gathered their forces to say, okay, we've got to attack these two and a half. And all of a sudden, what does the person say? The children of Reuben, to the children of Reuben and God and a half of them, right? Who did they send? Pinchas, Pinchas, our guy. Why? Because Pinchas was a man of peace. Because to be an honest man of war, you've got to be a man of peace. You've got to know where to pick your fights. You've got to know where to be tough. You've got to stand up. But you've got to know where to be accommodating. And Moses decides that there's nobody more peaceful than Pinchas. What a fascinating insight. You know, he's not a wimp. No. He's strong. He stood up against everybody, the entire Jewish nation, when he killed, he speared Cosby. Moses didn't even know what to do. 
because it was against who he really was. We've got to be good people. We've got to be kind people. We've got to be nice people. In fact, I want to just um, skip to a very interesting story on page four. I'm going to read the Hebrew. You can read along with the English. This is in the Talmud. Maseb Rabbi Gamliel, the Rabbi Gamliel, one of the great rabbis, what they do is, you know, um, uh, the, the Torah tells us that, that we would discuss, decide on a new moon of when the new month would be, dependent upon someone seeing the, the, the sliver and going to the courts and saying, going to the bed din, to the, to the central court, say, I saw the sliver of the new moon, then they say, what did you see, where did you see it, is it this day, that day, this is before we had calendars. So there had to be very, very bright people, the leaders of the Jewish people, who would be deciding, A, when the new moon is, or when we add an extra month, like this, month, this year, we have two months of Adar, uh, calendarically to make sure, because you know, we work on a lunar year, and we don't work on a solar year, so how do you make sure all the holidays work out correctly? Sometimes you have to add a month so in order to decide what the people who had to decide who to add a month or not had to be great Torah leaders. So listen to the story. So Rabbi Gamaliel was the Torah leader at the time, and he said, Hashkimuli Shiva La'aliyah. I'd like to call the seven leading Torah authorities upstairs for us to decide and adjudicate who, uh, whether or not there should be another month. We should add a month, the second Adar. Hishkim, they got up there, Umatsa Shmona. And all of a sudden they said, okay, let's start the, let's start the deliberations. Okay, we have, I invited seven people. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh oh, there's eight. There's eight people here. Oh, wait, wait, eight people. No, no, no. I only wanted seven because there's seven great leaders and, and not eight. Omar, start rubbing a wheel, said. As he's standing there in front of the, just picture the scene. Okay? Amar, Mihu Sha'Allah Shalobir Shus Yeraid, the one that came here uninvited, please leave. I mean, come on, give me a break. You know, and you know who you are. Like, you know, uh, all right, we thank everybody for paying this evening. The one who did not pay, please leave right now. We won't say anything. What are you supposed to do? Okay? Eight people sitting there. You kidding? You know how embarrassing that is? That, you know, you're not invited to this. Right? Remind me, I'll tell you a story. Just, just thought of it. Ahmad Shmuel HaKatan. So Shmuel HaKatan, who was one of the great seven, right? Shmuel, his name is Shmuel HaKatan, the small Shmuel. Even his name, small Shmuel. Katan is small. Ahmad Shmuel HaKatan v'amar, and he said, I came up here without permission. The lo la I wouldn't do it to add a month. Because I just wanted to see how these deliberations go. So I, I apologize. I'm sorry. I, I, uh, Shmuel Cotton says, excuse me, please. You know. Gemara continues and says, Shmuel Cotton have ela in He says, by the way, it wasn't Shmuel Cotton. He was one of the seven but he didn't want to embarrass the other one. See, here you have someone. First of all, that means that the seven up there deliberating aren't the seven greatest, so maybe he shouldn't have done that. But he balanced it out. He said, wait a second, no, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So here you have Shmuel HaKatan that, that was in this moment and he decides that he doesn't want to hurt the guy's feelings. And there's another story similar to that that isn't here, which is just 
equally as fascinating that somebody was giving a, a lecture and they probably had too much garlic or something and they started whether burping or other things I don't want to get to, I don't know and the place started smelling up Talmud tells the story so the lecturer says oh, can the guy that's here can you please leave we're in the middle of study Torah and they're looking around who's, who's going to get up right let's go just look at this picture who gets up Shmulakata. He says, yeah, I have a little indigestion. It's, it, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. The Talmud says, it wasn't Shmulakata. He didn't want to embarrass him. Wait one second, he's going to be missing this lecture. Not only that, everybody's going to be making fun of him. Huh? Now, this is all a setup, okay? Because now we think... What a sweetheart. You know, what a guy. This is the kind of guy that, you know. Page five. The ethics of the fathers. Yes, I'll tell you a story. Thank you. Thank you. So there was... Uh, there was uh, actually an interesting story. There was uh, there's a yeshiva that um, that um, they had some kind of a policy of where you light candles on Hanukkah. The question where you like to light it on your table, to light it in your house, to light it whatever. So one fellow in the yeshiva said, you know, I spoke to so-and-so and put up a sign in the yeshiva. Without sign, you put up a sign and says without sign, that according to the laws of the Jewish law, you should light the candles, I don't know, around your table. Okay. Now, in that school, for generations, they didn't do it around the table. They did it in the dormitory. So the head of the school got up. They had called everybody in, 200 students. And he said, who has the temerity to tell us what policy is here? We have rabbis here. The one who wrote that, get up right now and leave. Exact okay. same story. And the one who told me the story another student there and he said we all should have gotten up and walked out and we didn't and that guy walked out stood up walked out and walked out of the Jewish the rabbi was the principal absolutely what kind of chutzpah is it but was he right no was it worth it Worth the embarrassment? It's balance. <coughs> Look at Shmulek Rutten Club, page five. Ethics of the Fathers. If you read through Ethics of the Fathers, by the way, it's a great book to read. It's great. It goes through a lot of Jewish history, and it tells us all these different great rabbis throughout history and what their messages were, what their moral messages were. Look at Shmuel HaKatan's message. Now, and this is consistent with who Shmuel HaKatan is. And again, I'm telling you again, I'm setting you up. Okay? This is all just a setup for the final piece. Okay? Sweet guy, Shmuel HaKatan. Right? He takes the hit for the people that, that shouldn't be up there. He's the one who doesn't smell up the place and yet takes the hit for that. And look what he says. These are his, this is his... his, his his bumper sticker. This is his personality. Look at this. Binfol Ivecha al Tismach. That when your when your enemy falls, don't be glad. Right? 
And when he stumbles, let your heart not be joyous, right? Lest Hashem see and it displease him, and he'll return his wrath to you, from him to you. In other words, always be nice to everybody, and even your biggest enemy, if something happens, don't be happy. That's Shemul HaKatan. And I say, absolutely, that's Shemul HaKatan. Beautiful. That's his, that's his life. He, he looks the other way. He's so accommodating. He's so nice. He's so understanding. And even his enemies, and don't be happy when your enemies falter, right? Now we come to the Shimon Esrei. The Shimon Esrei is the prayer we say every day. Shimon Esrei is 18. There are 18, actually 19 prayers. 19 requests we make in Shimon Esrei every morning and in the evening and the afternoon. And there were 18, and that's why it's called Shmona Asrei, 18. But there are really 19 because there was one added. And the one that was added was at a time of Jewish history when there were rumor mongers and people that were going against the Jewish people and going to the authorities to destroy Jews and to, to, to hurt the Jewish people. So they wrote the following... Well, this is one of the this is the nineteenth blessing, okay. So let's read the nineteenth blessing. And the rumor mongers, the tale t- tale mongers, al tihisikva, they should have no future. V'chol harisha and all their evil karegatove, they should be obliterated. V'chol oivecha beheroyik karesu, and they should be you know eviscerated, right? And and you totally destroy them, destroy them, etc. This is like kill them and get rid of them and they shouldn't be here on the earth, etc., etc. Right? The Talmud then asks, who's the one who wrote this prayer? And the answer is, Shmuel HaKatan. Can you imagine? This hate prayer? Of destroy your enemy, kill him. Shmuel Katan, don't be happy, enemy. Shmuel Katan, it was me. There's a balance. When do you stand up for principle, and when do you look the other way? Says I love Cook. On this, and I'll translate. All the prayers of the 18 prayers. They're full of love bombing, and I love this, and God give me this, and God give me this. And to write that, anyone of any kind of value could write that. But this 19th prayer, that this talks of hate, the only one that could write this is someone who has no hate in their heart. The only one that can write this honestly. Shmulakot. Why? Because if you scratch the onion of Shmulakot all the way down, he's goodness and care. And he has no sense of I, no sense of ego. But there's a point everywhere where you cross that line, He's a terror. So look at Cain and Abel. Look at Cain. Look at Shmulakata. Look how Cain, at the first opportunity of anything, kills. And look at Shmulakata. Dump on me. Embarrass me. No problem. But it doesn't mean I'm not principled. And to find that balance in our lives is what I consider to be one of the struggles. Where do you push and where are you accommodating? So I want to give you just two very small, little, seemingly insignificant and Irrelevant to us over here, because I wanted to pick something which would, I could, we could pick things here too, you know, I'm sure. But you know, and you know, we could, you know, uh, there's plenty of stuff that we all go through, and 
um, whether it's at work, whether it's in family situations or in relationships, and, and um, you know, where should we be strong, where not. You know, but that's, um, I, I want to I step away a little bit just to look how contemporarily even the great rabbis today, how they look at an issue. So it's a very interesting question. Does anybody here Sephardic? Okay, we got people who are Sephardic. So there are people who are Sephardic, people Ashkenazic, right? People of different backgrounds. And different backgrounds of Jewish, depending on where you family are from in, in, in Jewish history, you have different customs, and you have different ways of prayer, and you have different things that you do, and different things that you say. Even though everybody's praying, but uh, everybody does a little bit differently. And if you go to a Sephardic service, even if, if you're Ashkenazic, you feel like you're in, I don't know where, in Netherland. And, you know, if you go to an Ashkenazic service in Sephardic, you're also confusing. It's very confusing. So there was a question asked by Rabbi Feinstein, who was a great rabbi. But let's say an Ashkenazic guy is in a Sephardic service. And you're praying in a Sephardic service. And there's a certain prayer which the Sephardim are saying that you don't say. Okay? Now, it sounds like a nothing issue. But you're saying God's name, and you can't say it in vain. So, should you walk out? Should you say the prayer? Should you be quiet? How do you decide what to do in this case? The principle, the principle is, this is my approach. Nothing wrong with your approach, but it's my approach. And therefore, if that's my approach, this is what I, you know, and, you know, I'm walking out, or, you know, I'm going to stand there like this, you know. Everyone's going to sing the hymns, and you're going to be like this, you know. Or you're accommodating. And, you know, well, forget it, you know, so I'm saying an extra prayer, I'm texting, you know, but, you know, so which one is right? So what do you say? Which one do you do? You have a choice. Walk out. Stay and sing in, join in, or say the prayers. Stay in and fake it. Right? Yes? Right, right. Let's not go there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Good. So that's one way to say you're absolutely right. Come on, this is, you know, you're picking your 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 your, like you know, it's a small little insignificant difference, and so therefore you would say you should what? Respect them. Go on with the show with whatever they're doing, right? Anybody say otherwise? You all say that. You're all so non-principled, huh? Also right, and in fact, Rabbi Feinstein says that you don't walk out. The principle. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen God, this is my service. You know, no, no, you don't do that. You stay in. Why? Because there are limits. You got to explore the limits. But they're, you know, they'll be part of. And he says even further. He says, you don't have to say the prayers. You just stand there quietly and all that. Yeah. He says, if you're leading, they happen to be leading the prayers, and they turn to you and say, you know, this is the next prayer. He says, you lead it. And even though on some level it seems like you're doing something which is against your principles, peace is incredibly important. You know, someone once said that the only mitzvah, the only major commandment where you should be stringent with your family is to be lenient with your family. That's it. Everything else you could be, you could be strong on that issue, to be lenient with your family. Yes? Right, right. So, so good. What about an eye for an eye, right? So, you know, it, A, it's not a, um, first of all, by the way, you know, it's not an eye for an eye. You know, when we say an eye for an eye, it doesn't mean that you walk over 
If, if you poked out my eye, I poke out your eye. That's not what, it's a financial consideration. It would be, how much was my eye worth? And you would have to pay for that eye. Just, you just know, because in the Muslim world or whatever, it's like, you know, an arm for an arm, an eye for an eye. For, it's, not, it's not in Jewish law. But your question's an excellent question. What about an eye for an eye? And I think that's part of this whole issue. Um, you know, there are times where you stand up and you have to. Um, if it's definitively beyond the pale, then you have to stand up and, and do what you have to do. I'm not saying be pacifists. We're not pacifists. You know, um, um, uh, Pinchas wasn't the pacifist. You know, Moses wasn't the pacifist. David wasn't the pacifist. You know? Um, but uh, you've got to be moral. And you have to be as sensitive. Yet These issues have to bother us. You know, um, the Israeli army is one of the only armies in the world that um, has incredible amount of moral training. Doesn't mean there's not a mess up every so often. But don't believe what you're reading from the UN reports day in and day out. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's such incredible amount of moral training um, that, that you, just, you just, just wouldn't believe it. You know, an eye for an eye. Um, is just an example of what Israel would not do. Um, if there's a, a terrorist house and they know there's a meeting of terrorists in that house, and they know it definitively, eyes on the ground, right there, and there are children in that house, they won't bomb the house. Now, to me it's astounding. You know? Because that terrorist cell, I'm talking leaders of the terrorists of Hamas, say if there's a Hamas conference of leaders in a house and their children, and whatever, that's why what do the, what are the, what are the uh, enemies of Israel do? Where do they have all of them? In the hospitals. That's where they build their, their, their networks, the schools, all these issues. And then they're able to say, look, look, look what happened over here. So an eye for an eye is true, but it has to also be calibrated. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about policy and principle is, is key. And, and Shmuel HaKatan, he writes this policy, this principle of... of, of of, of, you know, you take a sitter and you'll see this prayer. It's, it's, it's a wow, right? But that's not who he is. There are times when you've got to stand up, but that's not who we are. Something I said? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. One last idea. And I, I personally relate to this last idea. Um, and there are a lot of, a lot of similar issues. And this was actually a question asked by Rabbi Vadi Yosef, who was one of the great Torah arbiters of our generation. He was a Sephardi chief rabbi, a brilliant, brilliant, I'll just tell you a good story of Rabbi Vadi Yosef. Want to tell you a proper story? Okay? And then we'll wrap up. Okay? A proper story? Okay. So Rabbi Vadi Yosef was a young boy, and he was about eight years old, and he was living in, I think it was in Egypt, I'm not sure, Egypt. And his family was very poor. And he was at that point already very, very brilliant. And, I mean, when Ravadi Yosef died two years ago, there were over one million people at his funeral. Over one million people. In a country of how many million? Six million? in all of Israel, a million people. Okay? Observant, non-observant, secular, everything. Everyone understood that this, he was the scion of, of just incredible, incredible Jew. So he was six or seven years old or something. So his teacher saw that he wasn't in school. So he goes to his father, the Rabbi Yosef's father had a, a store and um, the teacher comes in and sees this, the kid, Avadia's in the store, behind the counter. He says, what are you doing behind the counter here? He's supposed to be in yeshiva, studying. He says, you can't, my father needs me in the store. You know, we can't make a living, so he wants me to stay in the store. He says, I can't, my father can't make a living. So like an hour later, 
father comes into the store. And who's standing in the store? The teacher. He said, I'll work the store. Your son is destined for such greatness that he goes to study. I'll work for you. And this was the great Ravadia was, was, was even at the youngest of age, he was like this phenomenal, incredible person. But he was asked the following question. That normally, if one fulfills all the mitzvot and the commandments of Shabbat, you come into synagogue and you get called up to the Torah. And if you don't observe, if you don't observe, you can come to synagogue and do what? But you can't give the honor of reading the Torah. So there was one synagogue in Chicago that somebody walked in the synagogue and he gave him an honor, the rabbi gave an honor at the Torah and the people said, what are you doing? Are you kidding? You're desecrating the Torah. Principle, right? Come on. This is it. This is not, you know, if he's coming in here, it means he's interested in knowing a little bit more about Judaism. Your rabbi, you kidding? You're 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 destroying our religion, and and and, and, and. no, I think. So after Shabbat, they sent a letter to Vadiosa. They said, "You want to hear this horrendous thing? This policy, and you look at all the books is this policy, and this is the principle, and this is what to do, and this is guarantees the vitality and security of the tradition of." Uh, Observance and Jewish life, and all of a sudden in Chicago, this man walks in, and this rabbi, he did the right thing. He says, You never know the power of an experience. And to close the door on someone that's looking to come in, don't do it. And in the end, that entire family became very devoted to Torah and to mitzvot from that story. So the rabbi didn't take a principle, he did take a principle position, but not the principle that we thought. Calibrate. There's not one size fits all. And this, I think, is the difference between sitting around and saying, where is God and how God works and God's this and God's that. And this, is, this is meat and potato stuff, how we live our lives. And this is stuff that, that moves me to say, you know, I want to be, I want to be connected to these messages. And, you know, if I read these often enough, it integrates into me. And there's almost no question or struggle or challenge that we'll come up with in our lives that hasn't been addressed at some level within the thought process and analysis of the Torah, the prophets, the commentaries people literally took today. This is a living poem. What we did, we started from a text which happened how many years ago? Almost 6,000 years ago. We started with the verse of Cain and Abel. And we took that thread to Chicago, Illinois in 2010. The same theme, the same struggle. We saw how a Pinchas hails is at one time in history. We see a Shmuel Akatan another time in history. And the challenge is how are we going to handle it in our moments of history? It's a, um, it's not easy. It's easy to be tough, it's easy to be a wimp. They're both easy. And I don't mean a wimp in a negative way. To be soft, always, always accommodating, always have. But it's hard not to be an automaton in either one, but to really think out a situation where 
passions and principles and policies and what's right and what's what's needed here drives what I do. Always within the framework of following the Torah tradition. And um, if we can take this message and develop other ones similar to this over the years of our lives, we'll find ourselves bound to a message that I think, um, as I say, the stories of the Torah, the only reason God has the stories of the Torah, it's not a rule book, it's so we learn from those people and apply it to ourselves. The more we apply, the more empowered we become. And I believe and I hope the more devoted we'll be to be God's little men and women doing his holy work here on this earth. Thank you. Any questions? Yes. Exactly. That right. That was the uh, that that issue is really. Uh, if I have a yellow line, I underline underline that because that's exactly the point. It happens. It's 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 a um, a slippery slope. You're going to start, and it will happen. If in other words, if you come in with that headspace, no, it's it's irrelevant what's discussed. It's going to happen, and that's why that that word, right? And that's sort of. Um, um, uh, Rashi, the commentary on top, also says that he entered into it with a headspace of arguing. And it just snowballed to killing him. It happened. And he'll, he'll scratch his head afterwards, right? And he'll say, how did it happen? I don't know how it happened, but it just happened. But it started because he walks in, you know, you know, wanting to have a fight. And, and everybody else that we're tracking doesn't walk in wanting to have a fight. They walk in struggling with the situation. He didn't struggle with the situation. You know, Shmuel Akatan struggles. Pinchas struggles. Pinchas, the man of peace, speared. It didn't happen. It was a thought process. It wasn't impetuous. You know? Yes. No. You know, and, and what's interesting is that, you know, um, Cain remains, right? And then that famous next line, which is a separate discussion, maybe if we ever get together again, right? Um, God says to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's where it's from. Right? I remember um, there were some yarmulkes that people used to have. And he said, I am my brother's keeper. You get that? Right? So, so the truth is, there's nothing he could do. And later on, Cain does ask forgiveness. And it's fascinating to me, you know, why does he ask forgiveness later? And the story goes on. It's a great story to read. You know, it's great to have a whole session. You know, at some point, one of the good sold sessions should be going through the text of these stories. Because each, each word, as you picked up on correctly, is, 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 is a world, right? He gets, you know, you know what the, the, you know what the, um, the curse was? The curse of Cain? is the mark of Cain. The mark of Cain is the mark on him, right? Why? He can never be comfortable anywhere. He can't set himself with roots. He has to always be someplace else. And he's afraid that everyone's going to kill me. 
So God says, I'll give you the mark of Cain, a little mark to tell you you're, you're, you're a protected guy. Okay? But, but you know what it is not to have a relationship? You know, uh, let's go a little earlier. Can I digress, all right? We still have a few more minutes. Let's go a little earlier in the stories, right? Adam and Eve. Right? Adam, there's this apple or whatever it was. Right? Eve says, sweetheart, you know? Right? Have a piece of apple. Nah, I don't know. God says, nah, please have an apple. Right? Where did she get the apple? The snake. The snake in the grass. Right? The snake says to Eve, come on, take it. Whatever, however he got her, he coaxed her to eat the apple, to get the apple. Right? So, God curses Adam that you're going to ultimately die. At that point, humanity was going to live forever. He curses Eve that there'll be the difficulties of childbirth. And then he curses the snake. You know what the snake's curse is? The snake's curse is you will just squirrel around on the ground and you'll eat dirt your whole life. So if you think about that, what's so bad about that? You know, I'm starving now, right? Now, if I were a snake, I'd get on the ground, and anywhere I go, I have food. So what's the great curse that God gave to the snake? He, he says, listen, I don't want, you know, you've got to go square. Okay, it doesn't have... He used to have arms, he doesn't have arms, doesn't have legs, okay, but still. But that you're going to eat the dust of this? So what? You know how much dirt you can go ahead, a snake can go ahead. You can put a snake anywhere in the world and it can be sustained. The answer is, God's curse was to have no relationship with me at all. Nothing. You're on your own. It'll be sustained, I'm not going to kill you. You're on your own. You know what curse it is? Not to have a relationship with God. No. There are prayers that you say. There are prayers you say when you eat some different foods. Prayers that you, prayers all day long. You know, the prayers. You have to use the facilities, the bathroom. It's a beautiful prayer. Beautiful prayer. Try to look at it. It's prayer. That, that you thank God for for giving us a body. And we say in the prayer that if God forbid something which is open is sealed, something which is sealed is open, we couldn't function. We die. It's a small little thing. It's a prayer. It's a donation. Thank you, God, for this. We don't take anything for granted. The prayers you say in the morning. The prayers in the day. Thank you for giving back. And I always think it's an incredible thing. An incredible thing. You could be exhausted at night. Right? You put your head in the pillow and you go to sleep. A couple hours later, a few hours later, you get up. You're awake and you're, what a great miracle. How'd that work? Thank you, God. Thank you this, thank you that, ask for this, ask for that. Things aren't going well, talk to God. Snake, I want to hear from you. But nothing to do with you. And all that snake does his whole life is slither around in dirt, eating to his heart's content. We have these opportunities to bond. Some people, unfortunately, like to slither, like to be on their own, but last. We're bonding people. That's what this is all about. This is this is uh, a chaver, a group. It's something special. Snakes don't bond. They slither themselves. Cain. Discourages. You know, there was a, a butcher in a butcher shop, a kosher butcher shop, that sold non-kosher meat. And it was horrendous for the community. And the bet in the courts brought him in, and they said, this is your punishment. Just think of this punishment. You will never, ever be allowed to sleep in the same bed 
two nights in a row. In your whole life, you just got to keep moving around. Not bonding. No, long time ago. Long time ago. Can't pull it off now. Yeah, like Could you imagine? Can't. You know what kind of life that is? Without bonding, without connection? Cain is told. You're on your own, son of a I'm protecting you. You know, he prayed to me, and he did pray, and he asked for mechila, he asked for forgiveness, and he had children, and, and things did, you know, you know, he had new brothers, he didn't kill any other brothers, you know, we don't know that. A snake, nothing. Just slither through history. Right? But in relationships, it's also the struggle of how you act and how you act to others, how you interact. And uh, this is a good guidepost for those issues. Thank you all very much. Pleasure meeting all of you. And uh,